she's a funny woman, right? And she loves life and she is lusty. And we know all of that from Shakespeare. So how much fun was it for me to get into her voice and imagine what she is thinking at all of these moments as she is observing all of these things that are going on in this household, in the city. And she was just an incredibly alive character to write. And that really carried me. Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we have Lois Levine. Hi, Lois. Hello. Lois is the award-winning author and historian who has written Juliet's Nurse, which imagines the 14 years leading up to the events in Romeo and Juliet, all told from the point of view of one of Shakespeare's most memorable body and tragic characters. Levine holds degrees in history and literature from Harvard, UCLA, and USC. Holy cow. But her preparation for writing Juliet's Nurse was also very hands-on. She traveled to Verona, Italy, to research Juliet's Nurse, as well as apprenticing herself to an urban beekeeping group in her adopted hometown of Portland, Oregon. I can't wait to find out more about that. (laughs) Welcome, Lois Levine. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. I have to ask about beekeeping, and maybe I'm getting the cart before the horse here, but beekeeping. So, you know, one of the things about writing around Shakespeare is that you have what he gives you and then you have all the things he doesn't give you. So all we know about the nurse or Angelica, he does give us her name once, we know that she had a husband and that he has now died. So I got to invent who he was and I needed a profession for him. But I wanted him to do something more interesting than just like moving rocks from one place to another. And so you landed on beekeeping. Well, you know, one of the tricks as a writer is I love to write about food because you can describe in such sensuous ways and people really get what it feels to smell or to taste the things that you're describing. So I thought beekeeper was great because I could write about honey and that would be this lovely way to bring food into it. But it turned out the more I learned about beekeeping, the more important it became to the book, not just in terms of plot, but on a thematic level that bees... My agent says that I sound like a crazy cat lady, except about insects when I start talking about (laughs) So pardon me if I'm too enthusiastic. But bees essentially function as a super organism. They think of the survival of the hive as opposed to the survival of, you know, me as an individual bee. And that became a really powerful metaphor in the novel for how do you survive loss, that you have to think about something bigger than yourself. And if you've ever been to Italy or other cities in Europe, too, that have these beautiful old cathedrals where you realize that the person who designed that church and the people who laid the first stones to build that church knew that they were never going to see the finished church but they realized that what they were doing was something bigger than themselves, and so they felt part of it. And that is kind of the way that the hive functions as a metaphor in the novel. Plus, bees are really cute. I mean, they're not as cute as cats. I do love them. Lois, I absolutely share your fascination with bees. They are amazing creatures, and what a beautiful theme for the novel. And I have to say, too, that there's a point in Romeo and Juliet where Juliet calls the nurse honey nurse. And I hadn't noticed it the first 3,000 times maybe that I read the play. And I think that that's one of the things that's interesting about this kind of project is that you find things in the play that you wouldn't have found otherwise. Jim pointed out that there is a bee on the cover of the novel. Yeah. (laughs) 
It's a beautiful portrait, by the way. Yeah, you know, it, it's sort of this funny negotiation because the novel and the play are both set in the 14th century and images from the 14th century don't look like the things that we want to reach for off the shelf today. <laughs> <laughs> and the Juliet figure on the cover of the novel looks familiar to me. And I think it's because she's sort of drawn to resemble the Zeffirelli Juliet. Uh, mm, yes, of course. Yeah. So Lois, why Shakespeare? Your background isn't in theater or in Shakespeare scholarship. What brought you to Romeo and Juliet? Complete chance. I was working on a second novel and I was suffering. It wasn't coming together. I was frustrated. I'd spent four hours one morning on it. And as I was thinking, well, I'll, this is enough. I can't get through this. The title, Juliet's Nurse, came to me, and I thought, oh, that's so good. And I did something that I hadn't done in many, many years, which is that I actually sat down and reread Romeo and Juliet. And from the very first scene that she's in, which is also Juliet's first scene, the nurse is this amazing character. We remember her as a minor comic character. She actually has the largest number of lines after Romeo and Juliet. Juliet speaks more of her lines to the nurse than she does to Romeo. And the nurse is both comic and tragic. So in that very first scene that she's in, she reveals that she had her own daughter who was born at the same time as Juliet, but didn't live. And that's how she comes to be Juliet's wet nurse. And that was just astounding to me to think about the death of a child, which is probably the most terrifying and profound kind of loss that somebody can experience, to go through that and then have this other child to take care of and comfort in this incredibly physically as well as emotionally intimate way. And so I was kind of intrigued by that relationship. When you look at the play closely, you realize the whole play takes place in five days. Who are these people? Right. And that was something that I got to explore, not just for the character of the nurse Angelica or Juliet, but Lady Capulet, Lord Capulet. There are all these little lines in there that suggest relationships we know nothing about. Lord Capulet says about Juliet, the earth has swallowed all my hopes but she. Well, that implies that he had other children who've died. Who are those children? There's a point where the nurse refers to Juliet's cousin Tybalt as the best friend I had. That's a little bit strange. There's not a single scene in the play that they're both in. You would think that they're separated by gender, by class, by age. So what's their friendship like? I wanted to know. So I had to make it all up. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the Tybalt-Juliet nurse relationship because Generally, in Romeo and Juliet, Tybalt is Romeo's foil and perhaps not such a nice person. But boy, do you fall in love with Tybalt and Juliet's nurse. I know. He sort of steals all the hearts. Part of it is that we meet him when the play starts. He's already out there fighting in the streets. And that's a question, I think, that a lot of actors playing the role is why is he so unrelentlessly angry all the time? And if you think about him in the context, certainly, of what life was like in Verona or other Italian cities in this period, where families really did think of people who had wronged them generations ago and this idea that there was honor that you needed to defend. And what if Tybalt, instead of being just this kind of out-of-control, bellicose jerk, is actually really trapped by the family's pressure on him to be a certain way and to do certain things and to behave certain ways. If I see the world through the nurse's eyes, so I have to think she's always right. If she thinks Tybalt is worthy of being her best friend, I had to figure out that, he, that there was something both lovable and likable in him. And I kind of chose to make him about 10 when the novel starts, so maybe 23 or 24 by the time the events in the play are happening. And so you get to see how a child becomes 
the sort of guy that we know Tybalt to be from the play. Yes, you certainly do. Thinking about the, uh, and researching and, and, and imagining the untold backstory of, of their characters is exactly the kind of study that actors engage in. How are actors responding to the novel? You know, the first conversation I had, I was actually at a university and I was doing a talk for a class where they were reading the novel along with the play. And one of the students came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, I've acted in a lot of Shakespeare. And you read Shakespeare and then you go to Spark Notes, and, but you know that somewhere in between something is being lost. He said, I wish that- <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. I wish that there was like a novel like yours for every character. And I thought, well, that would keep me very busy. <laughs> that would be a great deal. But, but, and then not long after that, I heard from first one and then another actor who was playing the role of the nurse was saying how incredibly helpful it was for them, how even if everything that I put in the novel doesn't fit with the particular production that they're doing, that just giving that kind of backstory and imagining the nurse, especially because she can so often be played as kind of a buffoon and imagining the tragedy as well as the comedy, slowing down her speeches so that you see how she is moving across these really different emotions. And I think also at least one of those people said, you know, and it really helped Tybalt too. When I was done with your novel, I told Tybalt that Tybalt should read the novel because it does kind of develop more of these. I think also in some ways, Lady Capulet, clearly I make her something in particular in the novel, but it does give her a little more depth than I think is necessarily evident from the play. About two-thirds or maybe even three-quarters of the novel takes place before we enter the time period of the familiar story. Mm -hmm. What was more challenging for you, creating the backstory or integrating the backstory that you had created with the action that we know so well that appears in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet? They were challenging in different ways. I mean, there's this sort of freedom of getting to do whatever you want in those 14 years before the events in the play start. But then it's also the question of the complete blank page. What do you do with that? And, you know, there weren't many things that women, particularly servants, were doing in their day-to-day lives. So how do you make sitting around sewing or going to church seem interesting? <laughs> for um, so that was some of the challenge there. And, and certainly once you get to the events in the play, as I said, like the plotting goes much faster because I know what happens next, what happens next, even though there are scenes in there and certainly huge plot things in there that are not in the play that I bring into the novel but at least you, you kind of know what you're reacting against. One of the challenges, having been a college professor who assigned Shakespeare and knowing what it's like when you have to force people to read Shakespeare who don't want to read Shakespeare, mm-hmm. is trying to figure out what to do with the language so that the novel wouldn't feel difficult for 21st century readers. And it's interesting because you, if you go to see a Shakespeare production, even if there are people in the audience who don't see much Shakespeare, they kind of get what's happening because of the immediacy of dialogue being acted. But when it's on the page, I think it's much harder for people to get through. And yet I knew there were all these lines that people would be looking for. So how do I work them in? And then another challenge, it's first-person fiction. The nurse is telling the story. So anything that she doesn't see or hear or think or believe, I can't tell my readers. So some of the most famous scenes in the play, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo, the nurse isn't in that scene. So how do I let readers know that that scene is happening, is about to happen or has just happened when the nurse isn't there? And how do I feed 
some of those lines that even if you think you remember nothing about Romeo and Juliet, we all remember lines from Romeo and Juliet. How do I feed those lines into the novel so that the reader will feel like, oh, yes, I knew that. I knew my Romeo and Juliet, even when the nurse isn't in the scene. So, you know, I like to think of writing in some ways as solving a riddle. And there were different riddles depending on which section of the book I was on. You mentioned that the nurse's speech in Act 1, Scene 3 was sort of a touchstone for you. And certainly in her speech, you see body, Mm -hmm. you see humor. And you get her history. Not to mention that the scene that she describes, you paint in such a vivid way in the novel. Would you care to talk more about the speech in Act 1, Scene 3? Yes. Knowing that we can be edited, I will even read it to you and we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I will preface this by saying I know where my talents lie and I know where they do not. And I understand <laughs> a lot of actors on the show. So I hope that they will forgive me for my attempt to read a little Shakespeare. We'd love to hear it. This is Lois Levine performing Juliet's Nurse from Romeo and Juliet in Act 1, Scene 3. Even or odd, of all days in the year, cometh Lamest Eve at night, shall she be fourteen. Susan and she, God rest all Christian souls, were of an age. Well, Susan is with God, she was too good for me. But as I said... On Lammas Eve at night shall she be fourteen. That shall she, marry. I remember it well. See, since the earthquake now eleven years, and she was weaned, I never shall forget it, of all the days of the year upon that day. For I had then laid wormwood to my dug, sitting in the sun under the dovehouse wall. My lord and you were then at Mantua, but nay, I do bear a brain. But as I said, when it did taste the wormwood on the nipple of my dug, and felt it bitter, pretty fool, to see it tetchy and fall out with the dug, Shake, quoth the dove house, t'was no need I trow to bid me trudge. And since that time it is eleven years, for then she could stand high alone. Nay, by the rood, she could run and waddled all about, for even the day before she broke her brow. And then my husband, God be with his soul, he was a merry man, took up the child. Yea, quoth he, dost thou fall upon thy face? Thou wilt fall backward when thou hast more wit, wilt thou not, Jewel? And by my holy dam, the pretty wretch left crying and said, I to see now how a jest shall come about. I warrant, and I should live a thousand years, I never should forget it. Wilt thou not, Jewel, quoth he? And pretty fool, it stinted, and said I. Thanks, Lois. <laughs> Thank you, Lois. This is this crazy passage where I refer to it as a sort of showing the embarrassing home movies <laughs> of Juliet's childhood. We get the fact that, yes, she had her own child who died, that her husband has also died, so there you have the tragic We have this description of an earthquake the very day that Juliet is being weaned, which then I get to make a whole scene in the novel. And we have the fact that she tells this incredibly raunchy, dirty joke that her husband told. She's remembered it for all these years. And she tells it not once, not twice. She actually repeats it again after the speech three times, just to make sure nobody in the audience has missed the fact that she's telling this dirty joke, right? (laughs) Who is this woman? Don't you want to know more about her? If that is her way to answer the question, you know how old my daughter is, this woman is also a scene stealer. Like, she could have answered, yeah, she's about 14. And instead, she gives us this incredible backstory, which Shakespeare includes for no apparent reason. We never hear references to any of this again. There's no reason for this speech to be there, except that 400 and some odd years later, I could come across it and decide to write this novel. (laughs) Thank you, William Shakespeare. That's the great thing about Shakespeare, isn't it? It's for everybody. There's no Shakespeare estate 
lawyer that you have to <laughs> consult if you want to adapt the material. You don't have to engage actors who have Shakespeare accreditation. It belongs to absolutely everybody to do with whatever they like. And in this sense, you join a long line of adapters. You know, I'm actually going to the Shakespeare Association of America and speaking in a seminar about adaptation. And so I've been thinking a lot about adaptation and when we love it and when we hate it. And I just read something by a Shakespeare reviewer who basically said, there are productions that try to be very true to Shakespeare and they're, they're not that compelling. And there are ones that change things radically and they can be very interesting. And there are ones that change things radically and they're awful. And that his take on it was that it all came down to how much you respect the original text. So if you think about a song that another artist covers, if they sound too much like the original, there's no reason for that cover to exist. It's kind of what you do that brings something out that makes us appreciate both the new version and the existing version or the older version. And one of the things that's been really exciting for me is when people say, oh, I love the novel so much, it made me go back and read the play. And I never noticed this. I never noticed that. When people say to me, oh, do I need to read the play first? I'll say, well, if you're going to read the play, actually read it afterwards, because I think the novel will make you see things in the play, like that relationship with Tybalt, that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And that's really exciting, too, that there can be something as not just old, but as venerated as Shakespeare. And yet we can still be coming to see it in new ways, whether it's through, you know, the casting of a particular production, a novel like this, you know, a director's choices that we really, we can keep coming back to what we think we know so well and find more in it. And I think that's also why we love Shakespeare. Well, that's a beautiful place to leave it. Lois Levine, Juliet's Nurse is available everywhere books are in print. Everywhere books are in print or in electrons or in, in audio files. <laughs> so it is a uh, published book, a physical book, but also an electronic book and an audio book. And that's a whole other story is like, then you hear an actor who reads the audiobook reading your work, and you think, well, I don't know about these choices. And then you realize, oh, Shakespeare is dead. So if I don't get any more input into the audiobook, right. <laughs> then Shakespeare got into my novel. We've been talking to Lois Levine. She's the author of Juliet's Nurse, available absolutely anywhere that books are sold or in print. Lois, thank you so much for joining us today on The State of Shakespeare. You guys are way more fun than most interviewers. Do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.